Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Sam Chamlin and Anna Wuffenden. Hello, podcast. We're drawing our summer series, Ecotones of the Spirit, to a close, and we're saving one of our very best conversations for last. If you've been following along with us this summer, you've already heard from Gary Paul Nebhan, ethnobotanist, Franciscan contemplative, MacArthur genius, and author of several books, including his newest one, Food from the Radical Center. But in today's podcast, we get a chance to talk more personally with Gary and to draw out some conclusions from his presentations, and we really tried to dig down on his geography and his spirituality. This pod felt like equal parts classroom, spiritual direction, and friendly gab session. And so it was really special to spend a few moments with Gary, so we hope you enjoy. Well, we're so grateful that you're here to spend time with us. It feels like it's been a joy to hear you in the larger setting, and I feel like this is just a special treat to get to sit down and have a conversation. Um, so we start out with this question of geography. What is the land that has shaped you, and mm-hmm. how does that um, influence your life today and your daily life now? Yeah. I'm Arab-American, and my family uh, emigrated, were refugees from the Syrian war was taking place a hundred years ago that is much like the one today. And my grandfather and my granduncles told me a lot of stories about the desert. Even though I didn't grow up in the desert, I grew up in the Indiana sand dunes. And so something now and then would trigger them to talk about the desert uh, indirectly. And when I first came west after the first Earth Day, thinking that the world was going to come to an end, that environmental problems were so grave that we weren't going to make it through very much longer, and I first saw the desert, I say, this speaks to me like nothing else. It must be a combination of genetics and cultural heritage and just imaginary domains of what the desert has meant through history. Mm -hmm. And so I really think of myself as a desert contemplative, that the um, spareness and the openness and the nothingness uh, of the desert um, is a consolation to me and a teacher. Mm -hmm. How little can we live on materially but still survive with an abundant life of interactions with others. Mm. And that's what most desert plants and animals do. Uh, It's all about the interactions in the desert. No single organism can make it on their own. So both my wife and I have been involved in a group of desert ecologists over the last 20 years that has shaped the notion uh, that the wellsprings of generation in the desert are under nurse plants that provide dark patches that are very fertile, but kind of unlike the desert. They're little mini oases. And all of the other plants in the desert, uh, their seeds are laid down there because that's where birds and mammals disperse them to. They regenerate under that shade. And then later when the tree that is their nurse uh, passes on, they emerge and you might not know that they ever started under that. So in rainforest, we talk about light gaps, that that's the place of regeneration. In the deserts, it's dark gaps. And so that very much goes with the interest of contemplatives in deepening our sense of what spending time in the darkness 
can give us, and deserts and darkness are recurrent metaphors throughout the contemplative traditions, not just of Christians, but of Buddhists and, and Sufi mystics as well. You took my next question, <laughs> because I was, I was gonna ask, um, just thinking about ways, ways that that directly connects to your spirituality, um, but that, that whole point about light is fascinating. Um, want to continue to ask though about being in the desert um just for people because i i grew up i grew up mid-atlantic this is this is home for me a little far a little north of here but um i'm used to environments that are green and lush and i'm used to thinking about agriculture in those settings Mm -hmm. so the idea of doing agriculture in a setting where it doesn't rain all the time and there's not an abundance of weeds and all those kind of things strikes me as odd and or at least fascinating like there's a different way of doing it and so your interaction between your commitment to the desert and your commitment to agriculture. You paint a picture of what that looks like oh, for that's, you. What a great question. I, I've always loved that uh, one of my writing teachers, uh, Wallace Stegner, the National Book Award winner from the Intermountain West, uh, once wrote an essay called Getting Over the Colored Green. <laughs> oh. That what we do when we move westward is most of Americans living in the Sun Belt have. They haven't come from the South until recently, from Mexico or from the North or the West. They've come from the East. Is that they have this longing for the green that we mm-hmm. enjoy and are grateful for here in the Piedmont. But that, ironically, the oldest known places of origin for agriculture in the world are all deserts. Mm-hmm. So the Tehuacan Valley in Mexico, on the edge of uh, Oaxaca and Puebla, is where uh, crops emerged uh, as full domesticates. People were managing crops for thousands of years before that. And where my uh, grandparents are from in Lebanon and Syria was that Fertile Crescent. And so last fall when I was uh, up in the cedars of Lebanon at the highest points in Lebanon, something I'd always wanted to see. Um, I was walking around for a CNN documentary on Arab and Arab American identity, and they had me walk through the same patch over and over again. And so I started to ignore the cedars and look down at my feet, and it was wild wheat, wild barley, wild oats, wild flax, wild garbanzo beans, and wild lentils. And I thought, Oh my gosh, this is my patria, my, my motherland, my fatherland. And this is where the wild relatives of agriculture were first brought into cultivation by people in deserts who had irregular or uncertain productivity if they just harvested them in the wild. So they brought them into cultivation. And I thought, this is so hardwired into me of being attracted and almost in a trance when I'm around these uh, desert adapted crop plants that I can't untangle it from who I am. And you've written several books as sort of exploring that somehow our food and our landscapes are encoded in our DNA. And right. I would love to spur our listeners to go find those books, but like, but how does that work? How is it that our landscapes and our food actually find their way into our DNA? Well, I've loved that exploration. It's probably the most rigorous intellectual challenge 
I've ever been involved in to work with scientists teasing apart that riddle. But, um, for example, uh, fava beans, one of the staples where my family uh, is from, uh, are eaten every morning there, uh, just like we, we fried beans in the Southwest. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, they particularly favored in the springtime during Lent, you're not eating meat, but it also ends up that uh, that's when people begin to get vulnerable to uh, malaria by the uh, new crop of mosquitoes that come when the weather begins to warm. And if males with this certain gene eat fava beans during the spring, if they're uh, bit by a mosquito that carries a malaria virus, they're protected wow. from it by the chemical ecology of fava beans themselves. So malaria was one of the biggest killers in, in North Africa. That's why we have sickle cell genes further south in Africa. But in the Mediterranean, we had this gene for favism, which if you ate too many green fava beans out of season as a young man, it's, it's a sex-related gene, they could kill you. you you'd, pee blood and all kinds of other horrible uh, uh, symptoms. But if you ate them during the spring as a dry bean under the guidance of your grandmother who knew that you couldn't eat too much, it gave you resistance to malaria, which was the biggest killer. So there was s severe natural selection for people to have this brilliantly uh, connected relationship between fava beans, seasonality reinforced by our notion of Lent, right. and then the cultural wisdom of our grandmothers who, who knew that if the boys got too much liking for fava beans and ate them out of season, it could be deleterious. So a whole body of folklore that grandmothers passed on to their grandsons guided eating it so it was a positive benefit to you rather than yeah producing deleterious effects. So it's this dance, the interaction, the, the dance between genes, nature, and culture in one of the most exquisite ways that you could think of. So our food literally shaped us mm. as much as we shape the crop plants that uh, now nourish us. And that relationship to me is another kind of communion. It's another kind mm -hmm. of sacrament. Mm. One of the things I was really struck by in one of your talks was talking about the way that you've worked biodiversity in the in the cultivation that you're doing in your own work. And I think how many kinds of how many varieties of pomegranate? Forty. Forty-two kinds of uh, pomegranates. Sort of the uh, world collection of pomegranates. I'm evaluating at our place and at six other places with with farmers in Arizona that are growing them from sea level up to 6,500 feet, and we're having a pomegranate festival at our place in uh, November that sort of passed from each farm that's involved in this evaluation of the world's pomegranate variety. So I look out when I'm weeding or watering in the morning and there's pomegranates from Lebanon, Israel, Japan, China, Kazakhstan, Turkey, Morocco, Mexico, uh, and the United States. And I say, it's, it's like the diversity of human cultures that shaped and cared for each of these pomegranates in a different way. 
to favor sweet ones versus sour ones, to favor different shapes and, and colors. It's all embedded here in my garden. I have to express gratitude to every farmer over the last 40 centuries that love pomegranates as much as I do because what I'm growing is the legacy of their own handiwork and their own imagination. Yeah. I just think that connection between the diversity of the, the food and also the ecosystems in general and how that connects with the diversity of culture and peoples um, is such a striking, striking intersection. And I just wonder if you could reflect with us a bit more on like what are these pomegranates teaching you? I mean, you, you do a little bit, but like, what, where, in the process of looking at the biodiversity of our food and the systems around it, um, where are the ways that you're seeing that immediate intersection with the human diversity and the importance for? Well, let me give you a little parable. Uh, one of my former bosses at a place called the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum came into my office one day and he said, I just took these two maps out of uh, different issues about a year and a half apart of Atlantic Monthly and there's an uncanny similarity between them. And one was where a map of where endangered plants and animals exist in the United States. And the other one was the areas with greater, greatest loss of cultural and mm. linguistic diversity, mm. the um, extirpation of indigenous peoples, mm -hmm. uh, the disparagement or displacement of, of Asian refugees or whatever. And you overlapped one of those maps on the other, and there was a perfect matchup that where we lose the cultural stewards of landscapes and plants and animals, we're more prone to see those plants, animals, and landscapes become eroded, degraded, or go extinct. Yeah. And then, of course, the flip hit me, like, well, where do we have the places with the highest biodiversity? And one of my heroes that I, I followed around the world to 14 different countries, uh, Nikolai Vavilov, who first mapped the centers of diversity, mapped the centers of diversity of crop plants, but then 30 years later, people in World Wildlife Fund and Conservation International said, son of a gun, that's the same geography as wild plant and animal diversity. Mm. They're in the tropical rainforest, they're in um, highly heterogeneous mountain landscapes between the desert and the tropics or between the deserts and grasslands and where you have these enclaves of, of a lot of heterogeneity in the landscape, you get different plants and animals that cannot find refuge there. And where we have broad plains, they were easily turned into monoculture under the plow with the horse. And not only was the diversity of plants that were once there lost, but the diversity of indigenous peoples and their languages were easily lost from there as uh, imperial forces from uh, Attila the Hun to Alexander the Great just trounced over them because of the rapid movement they could do compared to extinguishing mountain peoples or rainforest peoples. So all of a sudden there was this brilliant 
uh, reconfiguration in my mind of all the issues relating to cultural diversity and biological diversity, that they're vulnerable because they have arisen in the same places, mm -hmm. and that now, after stomping out the diversity of uh, uh, the plains and broad valleys, we're now have access to all these mountainous areas where literally in the Amazon or in, in uh, New Guinea, people have hidden with their hunter-gatherer traditions completely intact until recently. And so we can't really preserve the world's biodiversity unless we realize that the stewards of that in their areas are indigenous peoples mm -hmm. that are also endangered by the same right. uh, colonial, imperialistic, and industrial forces. Right. So we can't go and be the saviors to save the biodiversity and no. If we if we do it with a nineteenth century missionary mindset, we'll make it worse. Right. And if we if we do it, understanding that we have to empower. Uh, indigenous peoples and make sure that the funds are going to them, not to intermediaries, right. to do the work of safeguarding the resources in their own backyard that they've been capable managers of for millennia, right. then there's a chance of that. And take and protect from the invading forces, right? That's right, that's right. right. Yeah. And so you've been, you've spoken several times about your concern around this cultural moment, this particular moment with the chasms that we're experiencing in at least Western culture. Um, and so we're at a gathering where faith leaders and faith leaders-to-be are trying to figure out how they orient their work in the world to address um, biodiversity issues, climate change, and the like. Um, and you've brought, you've brought social diversity right alongside of that. And so what, is, what would be your call to faith leaders, to people who are involved in communities of faith, and I mean, to some point, even non-faith or organizations that aren't particularly faith-based? Um, how do we, how might we act in this moment? Because these two things are, uh, are so important to our understanding of who the creator is and what, and what is good in the eyes of the creator. I think that's the essential question of our times. And at one level, I have to say that my own journey has been this fascination with being a field scientist, an explorer of where the diversity remains on this planet. And halfway through my career, I sort of went through this uh, psychic breakdown and, and sort of metanoia because I realized that good science is not enough to safeguard and conserve those plants and animals that are now threatened and endangered, that those are value-based issues, that if we go about it with the wrong values, with missionary zeal, with no regard for the original inhabitants of places, we will inevitably fail if we think that in a technological fix of just putting them in a test tube mm -hmm. and growing them out uh, forever in a laboratory is true conservation where they've lost contact with the context within which they evolve naturally and culturally, then we've also lost uh, the war even though the test tube guy might think I just won the battle. Mm -hmm. it's, the conservation 
and celebration and restoration of the world's natural and cultural diversity cannot be done without the deep earth-oriented ethics of faith-based communities. Mm -hmm. They have always been the ethical checks on runaway science or runaway imperialism or runaway greed. Mm -hmm. And why would we think now just because our science is better and that our economic system is supposed to have more checks and balances that we don't need the guidance mm -hmm. of uh, faith-based communities that have contemplative practices that allow them the time to discern answers to the most complex questions facing us. Mm -hmm. The contemplative practice honors nature by implicitly understanding that whole thing that J.P. Haldane, one of the first great geneticists, understood. Nature is not only more complex than we think, it's more complex than we can think. Mm -hmm. So we can't conserve the world's remaining living treasures with just a head mentality. It's beyond our rationality mm -hmm. to, to deal with the complexity of it. And we have to conserve it with heart and head together. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it can't be any individual heroes. I love David Attenborough and E.O. Wilson, all those guys. But the community is a hero. The culture is a hero. Mm -hmm. The planetary community is a hero. No one can do it alone. Um, there, um, there ain't no single uh, white guy savior that's going to get us out of this. Mm -hmm. What are some examples of where you see that? I mean, we can't do it alone. And I'm just thinking of our listeners who were yeah. not at this gathering and, yeah. and are not, they're in their own contexts. And where do you start? Yeah, well, I was delighted today to um, open my phone to say good morning to my wife and see that a note had popped up from a friend in Peru, um, Alejandro Adgumedo, that um, started something called the Potato Park above Cusco in the Andes. Hmm. And he, he was a Peruvian-born um, citizen that wandered through Europe and Canada, became the head of Cultural Survival Canada, and then went back to Peru knowing that he, he could not help save the, the cultures or the biodiversity there without it being both. And um, although most people were really concerned about the, the tropical rainforest in South America, he looked to the incredible richness of crops in the Andes. And he heard about a couple communities in the mountains outside of Cusco, maybe 40 miles, that were sort of having a warfare between them about land rights. Mm -hmm. And he went and talked to them and said, what if, rather than fighting over land, we created a national park to conserve potatoes here because all of you are potato farmers. It'll increase your income. The land will be held in common good with a council of all of you so you won't lose track of decisions about it. You'll be part of that. But we'll declare this a heritage site of all humankind. Mm. And 
people will come to see how you're conserving the potatoes. Mm. There had been a dozen deaths in those communities over the previous years. They signed this covenant to protect it. The women have a medicinal plant center, a culinary center to teach outsiders how to cook with potatoes, another center to, to talk about land management. And, and now they're a model for people around the world. And the seed banks that were having trouble growing their potatoes in other places because they got diseases because they were near big monocultures of, right. of a single variety of potatoes are now contracting the indigenous people in this potato park to grow their potatoes because they know how to manage diversity. And so it's a win-win situation. We've concerned a whole landscape, the greatest single known place for, for wild and cultivated potato diversity in South America and the cultures are no longer fighting with each other, mm. but in harmony with one another. Mm. And that's why my Native American writer friend, Robin Kimmerer, calls this reciprocal restoration by restoring the agricultural landscape or the wild habitat. There's a spillover effect where you're really restoring the goodwill and the, the resilience of your own community. That's beautiful. <clears throat> and something that that question of what is what is already here is one anyone can ask anywhere, right? Yeah, I mean we can we can grieve what we've lost, but we still have so much yeah. that we've seen a fivefold increase in access to America's remaining uh, vegetable crop diversity through groups like the Seed Savers Exchange and Native Seed Search and the many seed libraries around the country. Some of those are the Native American crops that have been here. You know, in my area where I work for uh, 4,100 years, mm. right below my office are archaeological sites where corn was found that's 4,100 years old. Wow. Uh, but now we have 2,200 varieties of seed crops shared through free seed libraries in our public libraries in Tucson that are from every culture that's come to Arizona, whether it's recent immigrants from Ethiopia, Eritrea, Sudan, and Syria that have escaped with their lives with just a handful of seeds mm -hmm. sewn into their pocket or mm -hmm. their cuffs, or the Native American seeds from 4,100 years ago, or things that came with the Irish potato famine, or the Syrian civil war 100 years ago. So all of that diversity that is both part of our natural and cultural diversity is re-expressed in this desert climate because we can't grow the same crops that are grown coast to coast in temperate areas. What grows in the desert is special. It has to flower and fruit in temperatures above 100 degrees. The things that we get in most seed catalogs don't fit that. And that our community has taken it on themselves to share these things that have the heat and drought tolerance means that now it has a potential not just helping our own community achieve food self-sufficiency, but in a hotter, drier world where 40% of the land surface of the world is going to be arid, semi-arid, or arid subtropical, those are going to be disproportionately important to our food security. One of the things. Wake Forest has tried to do in this gathering is to say that all of this activism and all of this thinking and all the all the work we're trying to do in the world ha needs to have at its core this contemplative base. 
that mm -hmm. we have to be rooted in something beyond our work. There has to be something bigger than just our work that, that drives us. Um, and you've spoken about the fact, you know, that you're an ecumenical Franciscan. You've talked about your draw to the desert. And so I wonder if you could reflect on our listeners, reflect with our listeners for a little bit about that contemplative base for you that drives your work in the world. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I grew up in a Christian community, ironically, of uh, toe-headed Swedish Lutherans. We were the sort of the, uh, the olive skin cast and thought olive oil was a sacrament uh, <laughs> in our neighborhood. But, we, but um, so I, I love growing up in a Christian community, the imagery, the symbolism, the metaphor. I think Jesus was one of the greatest storytellers and masters of metaphor in the history of the world, and I always think it's ironic that people want to take him literally where always <laughs> it was multiple levels of truth, mm -hmm. not just one. But, but I was also, um, as, as many people in this gathering have said, traumatized by different parts of institutionalized uh, religion. And so um, I fled that, dropped out of high school, um, then went a semester into college on probation and dropped out of college to work at the first Earth Day. And when I thought the world was coming to an end because we were mistreating the planet so badly, I went out into the desert and then had this epiphany or sort of conversion moment. Uh, where I sort of heard the words of St. Francis echoed to me um, and began to explore the Franciscan tradition even before I could say again that I was a Christian. Mm -hmm. And um, I think all that time from Earth Day on, I was an environmental activist, but I increasingly became an angry, mean-spirited, frustrated, uh, environmental activists because we were losing so many battles. Yeah, the struggle's real. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I was bitter and I was impatient with communities because I didn't think, quote, we had time right. to wait. And it wasn't until I started to fail, uh, uh, personally in my relationships with people who thought I was too brittle, and in some of those things that I really thought were important as conservation concerns, that, that I realized I couldn't do it alone with, without a, a faith base. And pretty quickly I learned that a faith base is a contemplative base. And it doesn't matter what faith you're in, you need that to be human. And that otherwise you're like an alcoholic or a, or a drug addict making the same mistake over and over again and not realizing that you have to do something different. It, maybe a different time and place and context, but you're making the same place because your, your activism and your hope in the world and the way you treat people and the world itself doesn't have a grounding in contemplative, um, reflective discernment. And so I, I simply bottomed out and realized that you, you, you can't be an activist in service to the human community or the greater uh, community of life unless you root it in a contemplative stance that, that 
burnout isn't good for you or the community you're trying to serve. And so I, I just increasingly spent more and more time. And then when I had concussions and, and sort of another kind of metanoia, I, I couldn't do the things that I used to do as an activist or a writer. And so devoted more of my time to contemplative practice, went to the living school to um, study with Richard Rohr and the, his fine colleagues. And not only became a professed Franciscan, but um, a graduate of the living school. And I continue to, to grow. My formation isn't done. Um, I, I, I'm still, um, what should I say, um, uh, timid about asserting that I have any authority in speaking uh, from my faith and feel I'm just a lifelong learner. But I th really think the, the, the future of Christianity is in good lay leadership, where it's a distributed leadership so that we don't set men or women up to fail by um, ego games or, or power games. Mm -hmm. I'm just so struck by that um, it was out of failure or getting to the point where you felt like you were not being the person that you wanted to be that came the contemplative turn. Mm -hmm. And I just, I don't know, I mean, I like the circles I walk in of people who are deeply caring about things in the world um, that and certainly in the clergy community, like burnout is something that you say the word burnout and everyone's like, like yeah, let me tell you my story. <laughs> yeah. And and it's just it's striking to me that the very thing that faith and faith communities have as a resource and I as, as something that is they are grounded in this these contemplative practices the work of Sabbath, meditation, whatever that is, it's within that repository of that community that we're still just as susceptible to all of the ego and burnout and <laughs> busy and try harder and work harder. And, um, and then it's that failure there that like, that's what turns us back to it. Well, the, the um, African-American community and their way of in ways forging their own Christian theology through slavery and then uh, through at least partial liberation. Our work with civil rights isn't done by any measure, but th they express a humility for that kind of thing that I think we all need to learn. There's a gospel song that says, the very thing that makes you rich can make you poor. Mm -hmm. And so if we, if we go into service for the poor or the, or the um, marginalized in a way where it just makes us more and more angry. And then we begin to express that frustration and our tiredness and our, our bitterness to the people that we're trying to serve. We fail them and we fail ourselves. And so we have to have tons of checks and balances on ourselves. We need uh, the end of the week Sabbath, the end of the month Sabbath, the end of the year mm -hmm. Sabbath, and the seven-year Sabbath, 
all alive, you know, and so Father Greg Boyle, you know, after building that whole homeboy thing in, in L.A., took off to an island off the coast of Mexico that was just a prison for a Sabbath <laughs> a, a year um, so that he could step out of his own work because it was wearing him down. And if anyone's buoyant and uh, uh, offers love with an enormous sense of humor and patience, it's Boyle. But he knew that he was getting brittle. Who isn't? You can, you can hear Jesus snap yeah, <laughs> in right? some conversations. I mean, people said, "Oh, you get so angry sometimes. Are you sure you're a Christian?" And I said, um, did, uh, "Did you read about Jesus overturning those apple carts?" Yes. <laughs> he got pissed, yeah. and, and Job got pissed, yeah. and about every strong faith-based person I know has lost their temper, and I'm not excusing that. But it's it's that we're trying to love the world so hard, we screw up. Yeah. yeah. You've been very generous with your time, and thank you for sharing a little bit with us. Um, we always end our podcast by asking, what brings you hope? And not the kind of hope that ignores the issues we've been talking about, but the hope that sees through that and imagines a different world. What brings hope to me is every time I plant a seed, take a cutting off a tree and root it in the soil. Touch an elderly's forehead to see if they have a fever that I can help. Row into the ocean with an elder who knows the seed like the back of his or her hand. Every time I hear a bird sing in a tree that hadn't been there until a group of people decided to restore my habitat. Every time I see that bird with a nest full of hatchlings that wouldn't have been there if not for human care. Every time I see a poor guy take over an abandoned building, take plywood out of a garbage dump, steal some nails, and patch together a place to make it habitable again. Every time I see people take food out of a landfill and make a beautiful, delicious meal out of food that would be wasted and make methane emissions that would drive climate change. Every time I see a little child try to ride a bike or master a language other than their first language and find joy in learning something that their parents may not have known that then helps their parents grow to be more broad-based and open people. I have that joy. Humor and hope go hand in hand. If we have hope, but we don't have humor, the hope and the times that it's postponed or fails will break our hearts. And humor is the only thing that can serve as an antidote to keep our hope resilient. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we invite you to download the rest of our Ecotones of the Spirit series and to subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date on the conversations happening around food, health, and ecological well-being. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plainsong Farm, The Garden Church, and the Keep Until. Music is by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, 
Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.